Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNCHD1 Raleigh. I am Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. we got a great few segments lined up to start off the show here at, w, uh, at EOT. Excuse me. Uh, first, we have Casey Snyder and Dina Lee bring you a look at last week's Krispy Kreme race, you know, a very iconic Raleigh event that happens each year. Yep, long-time tradition. We'll hear about that in a minute. Next, Marissa will give a quick rundown of the Winter Olympics so far and then a summary of the history of Valentine's Day. Classic piece. Finally, Matt Schneider brings you a, a political wrap-up from the last week, so stay tuned. $700 for the UNC Children's Hospital. If donuts aren't for you, you don't have to run as a competitor. The race has three categories in which you can run, challenger, casual, and participant. The challenger is someone who is eating the 12 donuts and trying to make it back in an hour. The casual runner can eat as many or as little donuts as they want, and the participant is someone who runs the race and doesn't eat any donuts. The race begins at NC State Memorial Bell Tower, where runners will run two and a half miles to Krispy Kreme, receive their donuts, and run two and a half miles back. The Krispy Kreme Challenge is a family event where all are welcome. And on Saturday, February 4th, we had the opportunity to interview some of the runners after they finished the race. And here's what they had to say. So what made you come out and run the race today? Well, I woke up and I was just really hungry. And I thought, what better way to start the day than running five miles and eating a dozen donuts? How do you feel after running the race? Uh, really sweaty. Really, really sweaty. Do you eat all 12 donuts? Uh, I do the no donut. Actually, I ate one because some other news reporters. My name is Sharky McSharkface. Thank you so much for this interview. <laughs> okay, okay. okay, what made you run the race today? Oh, I had to beat him. Did you? No. No? <laughs> Did you eat all 12 donuts? I ate 11 or 10. 11 or 10? What about you? All 12. All 12? Yeah, all 12. How do you guys feel now? Uh, pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. No problem. Okay. Try not to get donut on it. Okay. Why did you run the race today? So this is the fourth time I've run it. Okay. And I had a time goal for myself, so I came back out to see if I could beat it. Did you meet the time goal? I did. Yes. Did? That's great. Do you eat all twelve donuts? I do. How do you feel now? Not too bad. I'm gonna go take a nap and let the sugar settle. That's but a otherwise good idea. I feel pretty good. And what's your name? I'm Kate. Nice to meet you, Kate. Thank you for this interview. So why did you run this race today? Uh, this is my seventh year doing it. Uh, I do it every year. <laughs> has it gotten better through the years? Uh, the course has changed. They made it longer. Uh, so kind of about the same. And you ate all 12 donuts too? Yep. Do you feel good, bad? I feel fine. And what's your name? Matthew. Matthew, nice to meet you, Matthew. Yep. Thank you, guys. All right, what made you run the race today? Um... It was, it's like, you kind of have to do it if you're at NC State. It's a, uh, something that grew out of, um, the state student body. Okay, and, uh, did you eat all 12 donuts? So, did you that? eat all 12 donuts? I did, yeah. How do you feel now? I feel great, actually. Is this your first time doing it? It is, yeah. Would you do it again? Oh, yeah. And what's your name? Mike Scrudato. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. What made you run the race today? Uh, the good cause of the race, going to, uh, charity and also eat 12 donuts in the morning. 
is this your first time running the race? It is. Did you eat all 12 donuts? I did. How do you feel now? Better than I thought I would. Okay, that's good. And what's your name? Matthew. Matthew, thank you for this interview. Thank you. How do you feel after running the race? Uh, you know, I, f I feel great about uh, giving my time and effort to the cause, you know, but physically I feel terrible. You ate all 12 donuts? I ate all 12 donuts. I stacked six at a time, had some water, you know, dipped them in, downed them, you know. Does it make the donut taste worse? Absolutely. That was my first time having a Krispy Kreme donut since I'm from New Jersey. So um, it was it was not the best experience, but I will do it again just in a year's time. Okay. Very cool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, I'm Andrew. This is my brother, Danny. Okay. And this is not your first time running? No, this is our second year in a row. We ran it together last year. Challenger or tag? Yeah. Challenger. Well, challenger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, somehow. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. How do you feel? Pretty good. Uh, yeah, good right now, but we'll see in like two hours. <laughs> you haven't thrown up yet? No. No, no, we don't plan on it. Can you throw it back here? No. No, no. Stay strong. Yeah. Okay. How long did it take you to run the race? You were about like 49. Uh, 49. I was a couple minutes behind about, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think if our other brother now. comes yeah, down. Yeah, we got to get our younger brother to come, so I think it's turning turning into a yearly tradition. You want to, yeah, you say this one. The donut? No, the elf. Oh, yeah, we saw Buddy the elf. Yeah, all the way from the from North Pole yeah. running around. Yeah. Was he holding the donuts? No, this was before we started, yeah. but I don't know where he good. is now. I hope he's alive. Yeah. All right, so what's your name? Addison. Addison, is this your first time running the race? Yes, it is. Yeah? You, you ran as a challenger, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, how did it feel? It felt good, just because, like, I know it's really, like, bad for your body to do. <laughs> so you ate all 12 donuts yeah. and ran back? Okay. Have you thrown up yet? Say what? Have you thrown up yet? No, I haven't thrown up. No? Do you think you're going to? No? Okay. Would you ever do this race again? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. You think it's too early to be here? What was that? You think it's too early to start early. this? No, that's part of, like, that makes it suck more. It makes it suck. <laughs> that's a good part about it? Yeah. Okay. Did you run with a friend, or did you do it yourself? Yeah, I ran with, like, uh, with four friends from high school. We're in college now, but we all go to school around here, so. Okay, you guys just uh, kind of left On them. the way there, I ran with one of them, and then I finished all my dumps before him, and I ran back with a different guy. Okay, cool. Uh, Thank you for listening. This has been Casey Snyder. And this is Dina Lay. On Eye on the Triangle. Good afternoon. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. And this is Marissa Jordan bringing you your Olympic wrap-up. First, let's go over what you need to know about the 2018 Games. This year, the Winter Olympics are being held in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Pyeongchang is about 80 miles east of Seoul, for those of you wondering, and this is the first time since 1988 
that South Korea has hosted the Olympics. To answer some burning questions, if you haven't already started watching the games, North Korea will be competing. There will be 22 North Korean athletes competing, and the North and the South will even have a unified women's ice hockey team. Next question, will Russia be competing? Yes. You may remember that Russia was banned in December from taking part in the games due to a doping scandal. However, athletes from Russia who can prove that they are clean have been invited to the games. 102 medals will be awarded this year across 15 disciplines, and the games started this past weekend on a Saturday. So without further ado, let's launch into the recap, courtesy of ESPN. Cross-country skiing. Scandinavians swept the women's skiathlon, a 15-kilometer race that requires skiers to switch techniques midway on Saturday afternoon. Sweden's Charlotte Kala took home the gold, followed by Norway's Marit Bjorgen, whose silver makes her the most decorated female Winter Olympian of all time. American Jessie Diggins, her signature glitter on her cheeks, finished in fifth place, 14.7 seconds behind Kala. That's the highest finish in history for an American woman in the sport. Diggins, a favorite to land the U.S. women's first ever Olympic medal in cross-country skiing, is scheduled to race again on Tuesday in the women's individual sprint. Men's snowboard slope style. 17-year-old Red Gerard became the only American to qualify for the men's snowboard slope style finals. The reigning FIS World Cup champion is looking to become the youngest American snowboarder to medal at the Olympics. Biathlon. Laura Dahlmeier won Germany its first gold in the 7.5-kilometer sprint, while the Americans continue their gold medal drought. Biathlon is the only Winter Olympic sport in which the U.S. has never medaled. Susan Dunkley, Team USA's greatest medal hope, started poorly, missing five shots, and failed to qualify for the women's 10-kilometer. Speed skating. The Dutch women swept the 3,000-meter final as Carlogen Akterekti edged out defending champ Irene Wust for gold, while 22-year-old Antoniette de Jong took bronze. Their haul helps put the Netherlands atop the medal table with four total. Short track speed skating. The home crowd's favorite sport did not disappoint. With the North Korean cheer squad in full voice, South Korea dominated the night. In the men's 1,500-meter final, Hwang Dae-hyun, who was heavily favored, crashed late in the race. His compatriot, 21-year-old Lim Hyo-jun, was already ahead and held his nerve to seize gold, setting an Olympic record for 2 minutes, 10 seconds, and 485 milliseconds. His victory marks South Korea's 43rd medal in short track. Olympic athletes from Russia notched their first medal as Semen Elistratov took bronze behind the Netherlands' Sajinki Kanet. On the women's side, Britain's Elise Christie put an Olympic record time in the 500-meter qualifiers, only to have that benchmark broken by South Korean skater Choi Min Jung minutes later. American Mame Binny also advanced to the semifinals which will be decided on Tuesday. Women's Ice Hockey. The unified Korean team, K-1, 
kicked off its first game with Kim Yo-jong, the sister of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and more of the country's cheer squad in attendance. Swiss forward Alina Muller also scored a hat-trick and put them up 3-0 early on. Curling mixed doubles. Sibling curlers Becca and Matt Hamilton's hopes of advancing to the semi-final round are over, despite a strong win over Norway. But it's not the last that we'll be seeing of the siblings from Wisconsin. They'll both return to the ice on Wednesday in the men's and women's competitions. Once again, I'd like to thank ESPN. This has been Marissa Jordan with your 2018 Olympic Game Wrap-Up. Thanks for listening. Everyone can finally breathe a sigh of relief. Valentine's Day is almost over. Whether you spent it wishing for a new boo or stressing about an appropriate gift for your significant other, it's a hectic holiday. Last year, for our Valentine's Day episode, I interviewed NC State students to see how they felt about the holiday. The consensus was it was an overly capitalist holiday, but discounted chocolates the next day were pretty awesome. So much for a holiday meant to celebrate love. But where did this infamous holiday originate? Since it's the day after Valentine's Day, I thought we should delve into some of the history of the holiday. There are a lot of different ideas about how the holiday came to be. February has long been celebrated as a month of love, and this tradition is thought to have a mix of Roman and early Christian origins. One of the most famous legends centers around St. Valentine. The Catholic Church officially recognizes multiple St. Valentines which is where some of the confusion originates. Unfortunately, all of these saints were martyred. The first legend of St. Valentine takes place in third century Rome, where Valentine was a local priest. Emperor Claudius II decided to outlaw marriage during the time because he believed that single men made better soldiers than married men with families. Valentine disagreed with the emperor and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Claudius discovered Valentine's defiance, he was sentenced to death. The second, more popular legend paints Valentine as a Christian hero who helps persecuted worshipers escape from Roman prisons. Valentine was eventually caught and imprisoned. While in jail, the story holds that he fell in love with the jailer's daughter, who visited him. On the day of his execution, he sent her a letter signed, Your Valentine, which, according to legend, is where the popular phrase started. Another idea about the origin of Valentine's Day was the Roman festival Luperci, held on February 15th, which was a fertility festival in honor of the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus. During the festival, Roman priests would sacrifice a goat, then rip the hide into strips. The priests would then take to the streets with the hide strips and goat's blood, lightly slapping all the women in the town with the combination. Now I know what you may be thinking. This is super gross and totally unromantic, but Roman women actually welcomed it as it was thought to bring them fertility. Later in the festival, all the single women would place their names in a goblet and would be paired with a single man. These pairings often ended in marriage. Not unsurprisingly, the festival didn't sit well with the early Christians. In the 5th century, Pope Gelasius declared February 14th St. Valentine's Day in order to cover up the pagan holiday. 
the holiday wasn't associated with romance again until much later. During the Middle Ages, the romantic meaning of the holiday returned as it was believed that mid-February was the bird's mating season and thus a time for love. Well, there you have it, the history of Valentine's Day. I'll leave it up to you guys to decide the true origins of the holiday. But anyways, happy Luperci! This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. No new passes. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and her allies have prevailed. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Make America great again. I'm Matt Schneider with Eye on the Triangle, bringing you this week in politics for WKNC 88.1 HD1 Raleigh. First, let's start with a question. What happens when a 700-page spending bill gets enacted into law without one elected official reading it? The media doesn't see what's in the bill. The rank-and-file members of Congress don't see what's in the bill. Only the leaders of each party who negotiated it, signed it, and then released it 10 minutes prior to the public having any idea what's in the bill. Rand Paul made a well-rehearsed floor speech pointing out all the problems and inconsistencies of Washington, holding up the bill's passage and effectively shutting down the government for a brief while. What he didn't do was point the finger at himself. See, Kentucky is a large beneficiary of federal dollars, and I don't see Mr. Paul turning those down. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Solari, an adjunct professor of political science at NC State University and also the proprietor of his own lobbying firm. Solari ran legislative affairs for former Treasury Secretary Janet Cowell, and we will run a separate segment next week detailing his experiences as a lobbyist. I spoke with Dr. Solari the day after a brief government shutdown about the current political climate. Here's part one of our conversation. Oh, gee, well, look, look, thanks for that introduction. It's very kind. It's uh, one of the things that makes teaching a... A real joy is to have students like you in my class. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I appreciate being here. Uh, tidbits about me, I don't know what to say. Uh, I've been teaching at NC State, really, uh, on and off, mostly on, since uh, 1987. And uh, State's really kind of my home. I've been at a number of other universities, but... Um, you know, I've really uh, enjoyed teaching at NC State, and students are great here. And so, you know, it, it's been a pleasure and a joy for me. Um, in addition to being a, a, a teacher here, an instructor here, you're also a lobbyist. That's right. I, so um, I'm an adjunct professor here, actually, and uh, my my day job, so to speak, is over the last several years has been to lobby the General Assembly. I was uh, director of government relations for... Janet Cowell when she was state treasurer during her term of office. Prior to that, I lobbied for the the state Smart Start program. And so, um, you know, it's really, I'm lucky in that way because uh, I always felt I get to kind of do political science, you know, kind of engage in politics and government and teach political science. The way I, I think what you see going on in our political system today is really the culmination in some ways of, of long kind of developing trends. 
in our in our political system. Um, yeah, without redoing the course, right? Uh, I mean, my approach is that there has been a dominant voice in our political tradition, which is the classic kind of. Uh, liberal capitalist kind of ideology, right? Um, we have a capitalist economic system. We've got a liberal political order. Liberal, and so listeners understand how I'm using that term, not in the contemporary Edith Warren, Bernie Sanders sense of liberal. It's classic liberal uh, in the sense that you create a government that's a limited government that leaves a large private realm open to you know folks doing as they wish, right? So you have a large private realm of freedom with limited government. That was a political philosophy, uh, really, in many ways, of the Federalists at, at our founding. That's the dominant tradition. But I also argue there's a second voice in our tradition, uh, uh, a much more communitarian, uh, public-spirited uh, kind of uh, approach. It, it starts with the Puritans. You see it in the, in the anti-Federalist uh, kind of response to what the Federalists were doing. You see it in Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, you see it in the communitarian literature in the United States, whether it's conservative or liberal communitarian li- literature. Um, so you've got a, a, a dominant kind of capitalist, privatistic, private sector kind of dominant um, limited government um, approach, and then you've got another approach which really sees government as a solution to problems, uh, a much more kind of, in a sense, self-sacrificial for the public good approach. I, you know, I, I'm really kind of summarizing in a way. Um, and I think what you see going on today is, a, is in some ways, a culmination of that tension. Uh, you see it on the left. Uh, there's, uh, it, It's interesting, right, because... Um, Conservative, uh, social conservatives like, um, oh, uh, well, Douthat in the New York Times is more libertarian, but David Brooks in the New York Times, um, you know, is, is well aware of the ways that the economic system has tended to kind of undermine traditional values and, and so forth. Liberal communitarian folks are, are aware of that. So you get, there's a real tension between the way the economic system's operating in our country and, and more kind of traditional values and institutions. I think that's that's the culmination of a, of a long tradition. Uh, and also, I think what you're seeing is, you know, there's a lot of talk of relativism. In our right now in politics, uh, fake news, right? The discrediting of science and so forth. Um, I think that is the culmination of a, of of kind of intel, an intellectual sea change that's taken place worldwide and in the United States really since the 1930s, um, uh, where you know kind of folks who kind of developed. Uh, uh, you know, starting you know maybe with Nietzsche, working through Heidegger, working through other kind of European kind of intellectuals, existentialists, and so forth. Um, that's that stuff is kind of filtered into the United States, and so I think it's it's shaped our political culture in ways that it really are only just beginning to become apparent. Uh, uh, it's it's it, the relativism you see, the discrediting of fact, factual authority. Um, the really, in some ways, the uh, what Nietzsche called the the will to power, the grand, the you know power politics. I mean, I see it on both sides of the aisle, where fact doesn't matter, uh, authority doesn't matter, winning is what matters at all costs, and you, you say whatever you have to say and do whatever you have to do to win. And you know, I, I see it in politics. I see it. I, you know, I've worked with communications professionals whose attitude. 
is say it loud enough and say it often enough and say it in an, as many venues as you can and people believe it, right? That's, uh, that's true, though. Well, it seems to be working. The problem for me on that is... I'll back up and say it's not true, but it seems to be working on a variety of levels. It does work, right? Yes. And it works because of the, uh, you know, what I'm trying to talk, what I'm trying to say, that an underlying cultural, yeah. intellectual sea change that's taken place in the United States over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. You see it evidenced in communications. You see it evidenced in politics. You see it evidenced in society. Um, you know, I, I think part of what's going on here, too, I, this, I, 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 this is a comment I make on the opening page of my syllabus, right? Uh, you know, I don't, I'm going to leave the private sector out of this. You've got, you have a hundred years of advertising uh, from, you know, the private sector, you know, falsehoods, misrepresentations, manipulation of people's emotions and feelings to get them to buy things, right? To, to, or to look a certain way or to have certain things. You know, a hundred years of that kind of manipulation of uh, loose playing with the facts and so forth. Uh, you know, it's... You, you, it really is part of what sets the groundwork for what we're seeing today. You know, it's, it's not surprising that Americans come to the point eventually where they don't know what to believe. They don't, they don't, all claims to authority, all claims to fact are kind of become suspect. And I think that uh, the way capitalism operates in the United States and the advertising operates in the United States is no small part of, of kind of, of kind of, you know, um, uh, preparing the ground for what we see going on today. I mean, I think there's other kind of intellectual and other kinds of power politics things involved, but uh, I think there's a lot of blame to go around for the relativism. So um, it's a, I, I think it's it's dangerous. Um, it does work, as you said, right? It works because there's an intellectual climate in the public and the culture's been shaped for it to work in part. Um, but what I like to always say about that is uh, there's, a, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, you can... You can make up the world to be whatever you want, right? But the real shark is the one that you can't wish away. <laughs> so sooner or later, you know, you can pretend reality is whatever it wants, whatever you want to think it to be. Uh, you can say it as many venues as you want, uh, but ultimately the facts of the matter are going to come and bite you. Uh, and so, you know, climate change for one thing, right? I mean, there, you know, there's 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 overwhelming evidence by, on, uh, by reputable authority, by scientists that you know human beings are altering the environment. We can deny it. We can, you know, say it's 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 not proven and whatever, so forth. I mean, again, based on the evidence, I think you have to kind of you know give it some credence and uh, a lot of credence and I mean sooner or later uh, you, you can deny it you can not pursue public policy that tries to deal with it but sooner or later it is going to bite you and the problem with that is that you know Shakespeare has a saying uh, in Hamlet diseases desperate grown are by desperate appliance relieved or not at all the longer you wait to address problems the worse they get and see that the real issue here for me is that you put off the solution to problems, and not just climate change, right? But in, environmental degradation, uh, poverty, uh, infrastructure—you uh, know—kind of falling apart. All these things. The longer you put it off, the worse the solutions get. I mean, the solutions become very illiberal. They become really, really uh, an infringement on personal liberty and freedom. Uh, you know, a great example of this is you know you look at you look at China, right? 
uh, you know, China going back, you know, struggling with a burgeoning population, um, you know, a billion and a half people more now. Um, you, know, you know, what you become at some point, you become desperate, right, to control population. What's the solution? Well, you you know, forced abortions, right? Uh, forcing people to have one child, the one child policy. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you deny or if you put off solutions to problems, the ultimate fix only becomes more drastic. And, and politically, I think that means um, those solutions involve a real infringement on people's personal freedoms. Uh, and they're, 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 they solu- so the solutions to the problems of a failing democratic regime, uh, the solution to the problems of a failing uh, political system uh, are increasingly down the road illiberal ones. That's the, that's the danger. That's the, the problem. I think on that right there, we're going to end it. Because that's a very powerful last message. So, uh, Dr. Solari, thank you so much for spending time with me and uh, going over a variety of topics. I uh, really appreciate it, and I hope you come back again. No, my pleasure. Anytime. And, uh, you know, I was, thanks for having me. Dovayai, no probayai. Trust, but verify. And to the C students... You too can be president of the United States. Obama. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Nick. And I'm Marissa. That about does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us on this fantastic Tuesday evening, assuming you've been listening to this live. If you're catching our show on our Thursday rebroadcast, good morning and good day. We hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show and every other show was Connie by L1011. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors and the rest of the staff here at Eye on the Triangle. Specifically for today's episode, we have Matt Schneider. Uh, Dina Lai. Casey Schneider. And Marissa Jordan, of course, our very own. Go ahead and be sure to catch another episode next week on Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. during our time slot and our Thursday 7 to 8 a.m. rerun slot. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Thanks again for listening in. You know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time.